Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Jeffrey Vance, a litigation partner with Perkins Coie and chair of the firm's eDiscovery Services and Strategy Group, and Ross Guberman, the founder and CEO of LawCatch, the developer of ReefCatch, a software platform designed to elevate legal writing, which has recently introduced generative AI features for lawyers and legal professionals. Jeff, Ross, great to see you. Good to Likewise. see you too. Thank you. Jeff, tell us about your background and your practice at Perkins Coie. I'm proud to say I'm a Navy veteran. I served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm back in the early 90s. And I did that when I was in the middle of college. So I went back to college and finished law school. And after that, I had a terrific opportunity to clerk for a federal district judge in Chicago. And then I worked for a few different law firms, first as an associate and then as a partner. One of the law firms is law firm you worked at too. And then I lateral to Perkins Coie, and that's where I am now. At Perkins Coie, I'm a partner in the commercial litigation practice group. I'm resident in the Chicago office where it's cold and gross. And I'm also the partner in charge, as you said, of our firm's e-discovery services and strategy group. So I do two things. I litigate cases and I help run our e-discovery service provider. And when I'm litigating cases, I do that around the country, state and federal courts for a diverse set of clients. Ross, you practiced for several years before pursuing a career focused on legal writing and developing brief catch. How is technology changing the way lawyers advocate on behalf of their clients? First, thank you for your service, Jeff. Interesting trajectory there. We're really living through an exciting time, I'd say, when it comes to how lawyers are advocating for their clients with all these new technologies. It's a work in progress, and I think we'll know more in, let's say, three, six, nine months. But what's happening now is a sort of meeting of the mind, so to speak, between, especially in big law, between law firm clients and partners, and I think realizing that they're not really enemies on this technology front, they're actually in some ways aligned, and just trying to find the right mix between using all of these tools to be more efficient, more effective, more reliable, while still, A, letting lawyers be lawyers, and B, being very careful about security and data. Jeff, you clerked in the Northern District of Illinois. Have the preferences of judges changed in terms of the writing that they expect? I think they have. And I think they have because the judges have changed. To put it back, when I was clerking for my judge, most of the federal judges were two to three times my age. Now I'm disgusted to say most of them are my age or much younger. But we have an entirely different group of judges who grew up with technology and even legal technology, uh, which I think necessarily affects their preferences and expectations in the legal writing product that we as lawyers submit to them. When I was a law clerk, I think the writing... As I remember, it was much more lengthy and flowery and ridden with adverbs and adjectives with a really basic understanding of the law based on the Westlaw and LexisNexis technology then. But I remember that it was very basic. Shoot, I remember there were times when there were motions submitted when we law clerks and the judges uh, would find better cases for one side or the other or would determine that none of the cases that were cited even mattered. I don't think that is acceptable anymore. And what I've observed now, which is a great credit to the legal industry, is that the writing is much more concise, much more targeted, with a better mastery of both the law and the facts. And I think that's in part, maybe in large part, because of the introduction of more advanced 
technology, both legal research technology and all of the other legal tech that allows parties to mine their data, understand their data, and be able to use that data to advocate for their clients. Top it off, I think we have additional products like Ross's product, which when we are able to apply the law to the facts, helps us communicate it better to judges. Effectively write the briefs to the judges. I think the judges have figured all this out, and I think they expect us to use all of that technology that leads up to the writing that we then submit to the judge in a very targeted form with a mastery of the law and the facts. Curious to get your take on this, Jeff, since you clerked and then are now on the other side trying to placate judges and clerks. So one thing a lot of people don't realize is that during COVID, most of the nation's judges, especially the federal judges, were forced to read all briefs on iPads for the first time. And even young or old, most judges were actually used to the old-fashioned way, the printed-out version. That's why you still have to file multiple copies. And since COVID, that practice has stuck, at least in the, I'm more familiar with the federal courts. They're reading on iPads, and in some ways there might be benefits. But a huge problem, to your point, Jeff, is people are actually much more impatient when they read on screens than they are when they read on hard copy. And this is changing the practice of writing and should change the practice of writing because if anything, there's even more pressure now to be incisive and, and concise at the same time. Uh, absolutely. I think, I mean, we all have experienced this. Maybe even they're reading briefs on their iPhone, not an iPad. I mean, to read what, using whatever technology those judges had at the time, especially when the pandemic first started. And so, yeah, I think it, it forced us as litigators to get to the point and not only get to the point, but then better direct the judges to all of the cases. In addition to having more concise briefs, we have to link the cases in there and embed it so they can just click on, on the link and look at the case, probably have it highlighted where they need to look and then go back to the brief versus being able to spread out on a desk all of the briefs and all of the cases. They just didn't have that luxury. So you're right. And I think, by the way, it ultimately benefited all of us because I think you're right that much of that has stayed. And so now we have the perfect hybrid of concise briefs with links to cases, more persuasive briefs, and yet we can print them out when we need to. Just thinking, Jeff, it's probably not a bad idea to tell associates to imagine an iPhone screen and can they fit their point about the law or the facts in an iPhone screen? Because I too have actually seen quite elderly judges reading briefs, not on iPads, but on iPhones. And it's an interesting thought, right? Just the idea of judges reading on an iPhone screen, is, if you think about it, is pretty revolutionary. And meaningful. I'll, I'll do you one better, though. I don't know that I have to convince associates because associates don't do, read anything other than on an iPhone, at least at first. It's the partners I have to convince that you have to imagine people reading things on iPhones because it's the same partners <laughs> that like to print it and like to be verbose in, in the briefs. I think that the associates are probably the ones that should be the advocates of and the evangelists of shorter briefs with links and to use technology to the fullest. Ross. Given your work with judges around the world, how do good writing and well-crafted positions affect the outcomes of Bet the Company Matters? So one thing you learn when you get to really work with judges in different jurisdictions and see how they actually operate and how they process the often overwhelming dockets they're faced with is a lot of judges nowadays actually read the two sides' introductions or preliminary statements first. And of course, they'll always tell me, and they're telling me all this off the record anyway, they'll always say, of course, I don't make up my mind per se, but I am getting a pretty good sense after reading the first few pages of each side's motion or brief, how things are going to go down. So 
That is actually something you can use to your advantage because so many lawyers around the world, it's not just the U.S. problem, waste the first page or two of their filings on platitudes or boilerplate. And you really don't have, you're rarely going to have such prime real estate in life as you have these days in, the, in those early pages. So that's a really good example where people are no longer reading passively in a linear way and turning the pages one by one, one printed out brief at a time. As Jeff was saying, they're quite adept at going back and forth, scrolling up and down, almost like sampling things at a buffet. But the number one thing they'll all tell me is they definitely do read those introductions first. That's good to know, right? Because how many times have you seen briefs where the lawyers spend the first paragraph attacking the other side, attacking the other brief, attacking the other lawyers, attacking the other the adversaries, rather than get to their point on what their issues are and why they should win? So you're, apparently, if, that's, if that is the starting point where judges look at the openings of both briefs, one side's missing the opportunity, the other one's winning. Yeah, and that's so true, Jeff. And I, I often hear, maybe they all learn the same metaphor in judge school, but they always say it's like when your kids are fighting and they run up to you and they're both yelling and screaming about what the other kid did and you just tell them, you want to push them away and tell them to go eat some ice cream and leave you alone because you're not really, you're not able to process all that noise early on. And it's quite similar in these sort of over-the-top, you know, rhetorically excessive briefs. Ross, how are they leveraging technology to assist them in this regard? One thing I think has been being kept under wraps is that although judges, unfortunately, in my view, are banning AI, at least temporarily, or at least requiring disclosure of AI usage, they're actually using it in their courts, including my product. Most of the circuit courts, in fact, uh, subscribe to BriefCats right now. And they're finding it really useful. I mean, obviously, other products are useful too, but they're finding it really useful for processing the briefs and not just uh, writing opinions. So... They are just as eager as the rest of us to be more efficient, more effective. One, one thing that's going on right now with ChatGPT is you have a lot of pro se parties able to instantly write a brief right, with no research necessary. And the courts are now already being flooded with pro se filings. So they realize the courts, nation's courts, both their own state, they also need to leverage technology to make them better able to do, do their jobs and serve the public. Of course, I'm all in favor of this. That's okay. Jeff, given the complexity of the litigation that you manage in your practice, how do you incorporate technology to anticipate challenges that help you predict outcomes? I can tell you, incorporating technology is already a challenge. So incorporating technology to anticipate challenges is a double challenge. The rules, the technology, the processes, they change, they move it's really hard to keep up. So what do we do? First, we rely on our IT groups and our IE discovery groups to just know what's out there. Not only figure out what we can use and then teach us how to use it, because I think we can all agree that legal tech is a really great way, not only to be better lawyers, but to demonstrate to our clients that we can be more cost-effective and we can improve our lawyering skills and in turn, the likelihood of winning. So leveraging the available advanced technology is a great business development opportunity in addition to just winning cases before judges. But then again, you get back to using the technology. And I think the best way to anticipate challenges and really predict outcomes is to first do two things. First, identify the legal landscape. What matters? What facts would cause you to lose? What facts, if they existed, would cause you to win? What facts jurors will deem material or meaningful? Which facts they won't? In understanding the entire universe of cases, the entire universe of facts, I think that's the first step. 
And then you apply all of that to your actual case. You understand the legal landscape, and then you whittle those cases and facts down to figure out how you're going to resolve your particular litigation. You apply the law that matters to the case facts that you actually have, and then you advocate that our client should prevail. So if you know what the law is and what's not, and you know what your facts are and what we don't have, it's much easier to predict what the outcome should be, and sometimes even what the outcome will be. So that's it. That, that's really it. I think it's just taking everything that we have available, using technology to find out all the applicable cases, all the possible sets of facts that will help us win and lose, and then figure out what facts you have in your cases and advocate those in the best way using all of the technology available, including the way we communicate it to a judge using BriefCatch and other similar services. Russ, so how has BriefCatch evolved to help lawyers navigate this accelerated docket? We're always building our reservoir of editing rules in order to make the sentences, the paragraphs, the points, the case analysis tighter, more incisive, clearer. But we're also jumping on this really exciting opportunity to integrate all sorts of AI tools. I just can pick up on something Jeff said about facts, and I'll make a little news here. So we're actually working on something right now that would allow litigation you know, partner and associate to upload the facts section, the draft facts section, and our tool will tell you exactly how each of the main parties comes across in the facts section. So if you take all the facts section statements as a whole, does this party come across as deceptive or confident or confused? And that can actually give really valuable insights to the lawyers who often can get lost in the weeds or start to think that their own clients look better than they really do and so forth. So you need to know what you're doing to pull these things off, of course, right? If you simply ask ChatGPT4 to do the same thing, you'll get something a little messy. But a lot of the things Jeff mentioned that I think people think are not possible with AI actually are. So things like, again, how does a party come across? Are there any facts that seem damning? Are there any facts that actually put the other party in a better light than you might have thought? Are there logical gaps in your arguments? You know, do your headings make sense? Do your headings actually preview the content of your sections and subsections? If you've got the right marriage between technology and expertise, the sky's the limit. And it's going to be, an, I think it's going to be a really exciting couple of years coming up. You mentioned the, the term accelerated docket. And in my view, Almost everything is an accelerated docket these days. I know on one, there's one type, the classic type, which is the rocket docket in jurisdictions where you have to litigate cases much quicker than the typical case. But there's also the other type, which is extremely complex cases with millions, if not billions of pages of information, hundreds of witnesses sometimes that we have to litigate in a typical docket process. That's where AI can really help everyone. Because I think what we're seeing is most cases are becoming more and more complex with lots more issues to be resolved. And we have the same amount of time to do it. I love the use of AI. I love what Ross just said about the values of AI. And it really does help us mine the information much faster so we can get to the issues that matter and litigate these cases in what I think oftentimes is too short of an amount of time to do it. Let me just ask you, Jeff, I'm curious, what do you think of the proposition that one day you'll actually have AI judges? In other words, you would almost like mediation or arbitration, you'd submit your facts, your argument, and you'd actually have AI render a disposition. Is that like crazy science fiction or do you think it could happen? I don't think it'll go all the way there. I don't think 
people will ever let machines take over that much. But I do think that judges will take advantage of AI and might even predict what the machine thinks is the outcome as a presumptive order or a presumptive final conclusion and let the judge start his or her process from there. That I think would be amazing, by the way, because if, if that's true, we could use the same technology as litigators, run it through the same technology and figure out whether we have an uphill or downhill climb or descent. And that's all, that's great. I think that's what AI will do is help us resolve cases much quicker because if we have technology like that, that we can show to our respective clients and say, look, you're on first base and they're on third, that might help. I'm just trying to imagine turnabout is fair play, right? If courts are telling litigators, you have to disclose what tech you used. And Jeff is saying that judges are going to use AI to help them decide things. Should they have to disclose to the litigators, the litigants, the parties as well? And if not, why not, right? Maybe, they, maybe that should lead them to reconsider their view that there's something so unusual about AI that it deserves its own disclosure policy. I would imagine if my tool was being used by the circuit courts, I would want the judges to tell people what tool they were using. But Jeff, do you think litigators need more technology to support their clients, given that there are so many tools to help with transactional matters? I'm not so sure that there are more tools to help transactional lawyers in transactional matters than in litigation. I think litigators use far more technology than our transactional counterparts. We've been using advanced analytics and TAR and active learning solutions for probably more than a decade. I don't know that we need more technology. I really do think there's a lot and a lot of technology out there. Some great, some not so great. The great technology has improved our business incredibly. I have become a better lawyer. My writing is better. My organization is better. I think I'm a more persuasive lawyer and I think I get better outcomes because of technology. But I don't know that we need more technology. I think just we need better technology that will continue to improve over time. So there's the yes part of my answer, which is I, I just think that the law will continue to change. The courts will continue to change. The judges will certainly continue to evolve. And technology needs to keep up with that. And the advanced technology is something that we as lawyers need to keep up with as well. And we mentioned generative AI already. That's a perfect example. I, it wasn't even discussed in legal tech until what, 12, 18 months ago? And since then, we already know it's a game changer that we must use. It's not a question of if we use it. We're going to have to use it if we want our clients to be in the best position to win. Ross, what new opportunities can law firms realize with artificial intelligence? So a common refrain in relation to AI as well, it doesn't have any judgment, right? Unlike humans, or it doesn't have any creativity. And I totally understand why people want to believe those things are true. But I would question both of those premises since we're on a roll here, questioning premises today. You're taking a beating on People call judgment and creativity, at least when you're a lawyer. I, I have found if you know what you're doing and you know how to do prompts and you understand AI, you can actually replicate or even beat with AI. Okay. So when it comes to things like you know, predictive analytics, like how is, you know, if you had to bet right now, go to Atlantic City or Las Vegas, who's going to win the planet for the defendant? That would normally be considered the partner's judgment, but AI has access to massive amounts of data that no human could possibly absorb. So predicting outcomes. in my That's not my world, though. In my world, it would be more along the lines of what we were discussing a little bit ago. Logical gaps, statements that seem questionable, right? Statements that seem like a stretch. 
unconvincing analysis of case law. These are all things that are considered, again, in the realm of judgment and even creativity in the law. And I have actually found personally myself just doing my own experiments. There's a lot of potential on the AI side in those realms as well. Jeff, how do you see law firms practically taking advantage of AI-empowered tools for litigators going forward? If I was restricted to a pithy answer, I'd just say what Ross said. And if we could use exactly what he was mentioning, all the better. Uh, but wait, there's more. Law firms have been taking advantage of AI for a long time. I think predictive coding is an example. In an e-discovery concept, we're really proud to have used email threading and, and other tools to make ourselves more cost-effective to improve the quality of our work, to, to make it easier for us to, to control the quality, improve it, and to find when we're making mistakes before we actually make those mistakes. So I think we have been using it. Generative AI is a whole new world. That I see is really a kind of walk, then jog, then run scenario. And it just dawned on me, that's a good analogy because I think you're a big runner there, Ari. But I think now most law firms, or at least big law firms, are easing into generative AI. We started to walk, we heard horror stories, we continue to hear horror stories about the use of AI or generative AI in our legal world. I think most law firms are very hesitant to use it because we know all of the risks associated with it. Uh, our insurance companies make sure we are very careful about its use. We don't want to disclose client data to the world. We don't want to base our decisions based on hallucination data or data that's imperfect from outside of our world. So that was what stopped us. But I am very happy to say I think we're starting to jog. Uh, I think most legal technology solutions are introducing Gen AI into their platforms. Sounds like uh, Ross's product is now too. And I think that is really exciting. I think at the very beginning, we, you used the word exciting, or Ross used the word exciting. That's really exciting. I think the more tolerant we are of Gen AI and less skeptical we are, uh, the, the, the more times that the, our law firms allow us to use it, uh, the better. Um, I, I think we are empowered to be better litigators and improve the quality of our work through Gen AI to be able, and I think that's the perfect world, to truly predict how we think the client is going to do in a particular venue, in front of a particular judge, with a particular jury pool, at the very beginning before our client spends millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to get to the end. That's the perfect world, and I think we're coming very close to that perfect world. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Jeffrey Vance, a litigation partner with Perkins Coie and chair of the firm's e-discovery services and strategy group. And Ross Guberman, the founder and CEO of LawCatch, the developer of BriefCatch. Jeff, Ross, thank you so much. Thank fun. you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.